When Jesus returns, time ends because eternity begins. Or does it? The Bible speaks about a 1,000 year period during which Satan remains alive. So when does evil really come to an end? Good evening and welcome back to the End of Time series. My name is Sharissa and I'm so excited that you have chosen to tune back in to join us for our continuing journey together. And I know that we have literally people joining us from around the world for these meetings. We're so glad that you are here. And whether you're watching on YouTube or Facebook or radio, we want you to know that we will be going live, well we are live, but after Lyle's presentation we're going to be featuring your questions and I'm going to be giving them to him to answer. So as you listen to his presentation. If it raises some questions for you in your mind and you'd like to ask the Bible question to Lyle, please do so. We have moderators watching our YouTube channel chat feed and also our website and our Facebook page. And so please type your questions in, send them through, and we will address those to Lyle after the presentation. But for now, let's hear what Lyle has to share. It's hard to imagine the potential level of political disaster for Nebuchadnezzar that the events surrounding his dream recorded in Daniel chapter 2, you'll remember we read about that a couple of nights ago, could have had. You will remember that the dream predicted the history of the world from his day to ours. And the worst part of the dream for Nebuchadnezzar was its prediction of the fall of Babylon to another weaker nation. Such a prophecy was like gold for anyone who was thinking of raising an insurrection. All they had to do was claim that they were the legitimate fulfillment of the chest of silver and convince their followers that the vision was a guarantee of victory for their cause and they would have thousands flocking to their banner. Simultaneously, for those called upon by Nebuchadnezzar to defend his realm, the dream would at least have given them pause for thought, if not completely devastate their morale. War is a terrible business in which the combatants are called upon to face the most horrific circumstances in the most terrifying situations. No soldier is willing to place his life on the line and fight for a cause that is lost. Doubts about the possibility of winning and surviving a battle eat away in the mind of the fighting man and in many instances have the ability to completely incapacitate him. In warfare, the single greatest force multiplier is morale. History is replete with examples of large, heavily armed military forces that were defeated by a small, under-resourced opponent. In every case, there is an imbalance in morale between the opponents, with the smaller force having the higher level of morale. Napoleon Bonaparte stated that morale is to the physical as three to one and proved it on many occasions in spectacular fashion. Chiang Kai-shek claimed that war is not only a matter of equipment, artillery, good troops or air force, it is a largely a matter of spirit or morale. Today the United States military spends over $50 million each year on positive psychology 
psychology boost to the morale of its troops. Nebuchadnezzar had just received a prediction that had the potential to annihilate the morale of his army while strengthening his enemies. And it had not happened in secret. The fact that Nebuchadnezzar had gathered his entire cabinet and then ordered their arrest, execution and destruction of all their property reveals that these events did not take place in obscurity. News of an event as outrageous as this in the ancient world would have travelled through the city in a matter of hours and the entire empire within days. The salvation of the cabinet and their families by a teenage Jewish slave who interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's vision would have only amplified the impact made in the world at that time. Typically, someone giving such a desired pronouncement uh, of the end of the empire in public to the king would have been immediately executed for inciting insurrection. The fact that Daniel was not executed reveals that Nebuchadnezzar was truly impressed by what Daniel had stated. Nebuchadnezzar found himself in a difficult position. He could claim that Daniel had fabricated the dream along with its interpretation and thus insulate himself from the negative implications of the prophecy, but to do so would have placed him in opposition to a little-known Jewish god that had just outperformed every other god within the empire. Offending a god with such power would not be wise in any circumstances. Nebuchadnezzar's only viable alternative was to admit the truth of Daniel's statements and appease Daniel's God by honouring Daniel and his friends. Having hopefully appeased Daniel's God by making him prime minister, Nebuchadnezzar was left with the problem of damage control. What should he do if insurrection did break out? How should he respond if Daniel's vision became part of the pretext for rebellion within the empire? And then it happened. A rebellion broke out within his own army in 595 BC, the 10th year of his reign. This rebellion was led by one of his own generals stationed in the western provinces, not far from Judea, a man by the name of Nabu-Ahibulut. While the records gloss over the rebellion and loudly proclaim Nebuchadnezzar's stunning victory, by reading between the lines, we can see just how significant this insurrection was and how very nearly Nebuchadnezzar was defeated. Typically, a king of Nebuchadnezzar's stature would not go into battle to put down a small rebellion. He had armies and generals to do that. Only a rebellion that was a very real threat to his empire would require him to attend personally. And it seems that in this battle, the conflict was so severe that Nebuchadnezzar was required to stand and fight in hand-to-hand combat alongside his own soldiers. The record states, In the 10th year, the king of Babylon was in his own land. From the month of Kislev to the month of Tebet, there was rebellion in Babylon. With his arms, he slew many of his own army. His own hand captured his enemy. Such a widespread rebellion would have left a lot of empty positions within the empire, requiring Nebuchadnezzar to make a significant number of new appointments and necessitate the leadership of the empire to come to the capital to re-swear their allegiance to the king. And just such a record can be found. From this time, written on what is called the prism of new appointments. The prism of new appointments was made from clay and comprises all the typical replacements of officials that would have been made after a very large rebellion had been defeated. They include court officials, officials of the land, officials of towns, district officials, western vassal kings. Recorded on this prism are a number of names that catch the immediate attention of students of the Bible. These names jump out to us from among 50 individuals that are mentioned, showing just how widespread 
widespread this rebellion had become before being defeated. Names listed include Nebuzaradan. He burned Jerusalem after it was conquered in 588 BC. He's mentioned in 2 Kings 25. Nogal Sarariza, a Babylonian official who cooperated with Nebuzaradan in settling affairs in Judah after the conquest of Jerusalem. His name appears twice in Jeremiah 39. And then you have these three. Hananu, or Hananiah, chief of the merchants of Babylon. Adinabu, or Abednego, secretary of the crown prince. Meshalem, or Mishael, keeper of the slave girls. Now, having put down the rebellion, Nebuchadnezzar made a show of force by marching his army in 594 BC through the Levant from where the trouble had arisen. Finally, satisfied that the empire was back in order the next year in 593, Nebuchadnezzar called all the leaders of the provinces to Babylon to reconfirm their oath of loyalty to himself. Zedekiah is included as one of the vassal kings required to be there, and we find this recorded in Jeremiah 51. Now, there is only one other record of such an event, and we find it in Daniel 3. The Bible says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was 27 metres and its width 9 metres. He set it up in the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counsellors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of all the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Daniel 3, 1 and 2. We need not speculate as to the reason Nebuchadnezzar chose to build this kind of symbol to represent his empire and why he chose it as the means of having his leaders reaffirm their oath of loyalty to him. Nebuchadnezzar's idol was made of gold from top to bottom and was created to send a crystal clear message to the empire that he had no intention of acquiescing to Daniel's prediction. The effort and expense involved in building the image, combined with the challenge of gathering the leadership of the entire empire, along with the very real danger of grievously insulting one of the other gods, must have been motivated by some extraordinarily traumatic event easily explained by the rebellion. The Bible continues. Harold cried aloud, To you it is commanded that you shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the middle of a burning fiery furnace. You can read all this in Daniel chapter 3. Of course, Daniel's friends, Hananiah, Abednego and Mishael, refused to bow down and worship this image. And to cut a long story short, the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And these men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, fell down, bound into the middle of the burning fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar's decree to heat the furnace seven times hotter than it had been heated before reveals the level of nervousness he had about confronting the God of the Jews. Nebuchadnezzar has backed himself into a corner. He is now, he is now forced to confront Yahweh, something he no doubt did not relish. Nebuchadnezzar had come in contact with Yahweh before. He understood just how powerful this Jewish God could be. Yahweh had answered his dream when none of the Babylonian or Chaldean gods could do so. And he was no doubt familiar with the history of Merodach Baladan, one of his predecessors, who had been told that Yahweh had in times past turned the sun back in the sky by 10 degrees. 
such a God was not to be taken lightly. And he had to be sure that these men were thoroughly executed. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had just stated that their God had the power to deliver them if he chose to do so. And he could not afford to pardon them for the incident had taken place in public and a pardon would be an overt show of weakness. When the entire purpose of the image and demonstration of allegiance was to show his strength. What he did not realize is that every degree of temperature he added to the furnace simply multiplied the level of glory God would receive. For the onlookers from around the world, the image was forgotten. All eyes were on the furnace. Then the Bible says, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, saying to his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the middle of the fire? They answered and said, True, O king. Look, he said, I can see four men loose walking in the middle of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Having stolen the show, God did not waste his time. Jesus Christ himself left the courts of heaven and personally came to, earth, came to the aid of his faithful servants. What an experience they had. There are very few in the Old Testament who had the privilege of meeting Jesus face to face. But here we find these three young men, along with Nebuchadnezzar himself, receiving a privilege equal to Abraham, Moses and Joshua. Here's a lesson for all of us. Jesus, the ruler and creator of the entire universe is so interested in each one of us and you as an individual that he is prepared to personally come to your aid if needed. Now, it would be hard to imagine that the leadership of the empire as they travelled home would have had much else to talk about other than the rescue of the Jews from the furnace. And if there were those who still harboured rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar, they would have been keen to ally themselves with a God who, even though he'd come from a micro-nation, was prepared to stand up against the Babylonian gods. And yet they all missed the point of God's display of power. On Zedekiah's return from swearing his allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, the false prophet, Hananiah predicted that the captive Jews would be released from Babylonian captivity within two years. Zedekiah then proceeded to host a conference in Jerusalem to plan rebellion against Babylon. He received envoys from many of the western provinces, including Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre and Sidon. Why would these kingdoms show such an interest in a tiny nation like Judea, unless they suspected that the Jewish God Yahweh might be interested in an anti-Babylonian position. This conference resulted in Judahites, Tyranians, Sidonians, Ammonites, Moabites, Edomites, all sending mercenaries to Egypt to aid the Egyptian cause against Babylon. It seems that the Western provinces, having been defeated in their previous rebellion, were not prepared to entrust their entire cause to Yahweh, and so decided to also align themselves with Egypt, the alternative superpower in the world at that time. But all this was in vain. The end for Babylon would not come from the south. It would come from the north in the form of what was then a minor state of the Median Empire, Persia. And it would come not long after Nebuchadnezzar died. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was neither the last nor the first to imagine building an empire that would last forever. Julius Caesar was probably the most successful, founding an empire that lasted 1,480 years. With the Kushite Empire in North Africa, his closest rival lasting for 1,350. 
The Venetian Empire lasted for 1,100 years, with the Korean Silla Empire making it to 992. Finally coming in at fifth place is the Holy Roman Empire, going for 844 years. Significantly, they've all failed. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar, who built an image of an empire that would last for eternity, ruled a nation that would only make it a measly 87 years. But the idea has never gone away. Just 80 years ago, Adolf Hitler proclaimed that the Third Reich would last for a thousand years. He made it to just 11. But the Bible speaks of a kingdom that will come to power and be led by Jesus Christ, a kingdom that will last for eternity. And this empire in its first phase will stretch for 1,000 years and be an empire of peace, ruling only those who wished to be ruled by it. Sharissa, what does the Bible have to say about the 1,000 years and how it all begins? Let's get into our Bible study for this evening. I am excited that we're here, Lyle, because that was so interesting. I really enjoyed it. And if you're enjoying this too, I just want to remind you before um, Lyle continues the Bible study for us that we have a free offer connected to tonight's presentation. It's this little booklet here called The Millennium. And if you would like to obtain your free copy, it's real simple. You just simply text the word peace to the number on your screen or if you're listening on radio it's 0428-833-386 or if you want to chat to somebody about tonight's topic you can simply text the word chat and we will connect with you all right Lyle. Oh, so don't forget to su subscribe while you're there oh, on yeah. youtube hit the like hit the subscribe hit the bell ring the bell apparently that means you get the notification when we do go live i've got it wrong so i learned something all there right, you Lyle, go where do we go all right, so let's, um, let's talk about this 1,000 years. Yes. And uh, it, it's described in Revelation chapter 20. In fact, Revelation 20 is the only place in the Bible that talks about, that, that defines this 1,000-year period. So, Sharissa, yep. why don't you read for us the first three verses? Sure. So Revelation 21 to 3, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Okay, so we took, we took some passages there from uh, all the way through to the end of verse 4. So here you've got a kingdom being formed, don't you? Yeah, it looks like it. This is a kingdom because you've got down the end there, you've got thrones and rulership yeah. and all that kind of thing mm -hmm. for a thousand years. And you've got Satan who is chained, who is bound up for that 1,000 year period. Mm -hmm. So we've got to ask some questions, answer some questions here this evening that just jump out to us from this particular passage right here. It's like, when does this 1,000 years begin? What marks the beginning? What marks the end? What is the purpose of it? What, does it, what, what function does it form? So we're going to look into all of those questions this evening. It's going to be most interesting. Very good. I'm looking forward to this. Great. So, Lyle, if I read another verse, yes. maybe you can explain how this all fits in. Okay. So right. if I'm reading now the chapter before, so yes. Revelation chapter 19, I'm just going to look at, you know. And, and when we say the chapter before. Yes. We've got to remember that the chapter breaks that are in here were put in there by human beings about a thousand years ago. These aren't in the original. Mm -hmm. And so 
what you've got is that this prophecy that we've got in chapter 20, we started reading in verse 1, but it actually begins in chapter 19 and verse 11. So let's go back to the beginning of the prophecy and let's work our way chronologically down through it, see what we've got. That'll give us our introduction to the thousand years. It's a really good clarification. Reminders, send in your questions because we're coming to them. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Send them in. Comment We'd love on, to hear from you. Yeah, website. In fact, we've got some from last night that we, we didn't do. get to. We're going to get to them. Oh, okay, verses 11 to 19 portions. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies in heaven followed him on white horses and I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Okay, so let's just summarize what we've got here. We've got some symbolic language but even just looking at what is obvious you've got Jesus leaving heaven you've got the armies of heaven that's the angels coming with Jesus and you've got them coming back down to this earth and you're going to have a conflict there between the armies of God and the wicked who are on earth okay that's the second coming of Jesus we read about this a couple of nights ago when Jesus comes back there's going to be a conflict the Bible says all of the tribes of the earth mourn Why do they mourn? Because they are lost and because they are in rebellion against God. And so what we have in Revelation 19 is a description, another place where the Bible describes the return of Jesus Christ. And then without a break from chapter 19, it flows into chapter 20 and the millennium begins. So if you're wondering where the millennium begins, it begins with the return of Jesus Christ. And so a little bit like this, Jesus comes back. Eternity starts. And the moment eternity starts, time has no relevancy. And so we could say, Time has ended, but it kind of hasn't because God has cut off this special 1,000-year period because he has some really important things that he needs to do at the end of this world as we know it. Okay, so the end of time isn't the coming of Jesus. Well, it depends how you want to define it. Okay, just, all right. (laughs) You you, you all can argue with me on this one. Yeah, yeah. Is is, is the end of time when Jesus returns or is it at the end of the thousand years? You can build an argument for either of those. You can. All right. Whichever way you go, I'll argue with you. No, I won't. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you take one side and I'll take the other? Okay, sounds good. Well, Lyle, I've got some questions. We're going to back up just a little bit for last night. Yeah, because we're talking here still about the second coming of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And last night we talked about the resurrection when Jesus comes back. Mm -hmm. Um, And we did have some questions about the resurrection that we didn't get to cover last night. Yes, we did. And some that have come through since then. Yes. So the first one um, is from a Facebook viewer and she she actually, I saw her in the comments tonight. I hope Lyle gets to my question. So we'll put you in first. Um, Van Prasag, I hope I said your name right, but thank you for your question. In John 20, 17 to 19, Jesus said, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father in heaven. My question is, why did Jesus not allow Mary to touch him? And that very same day at evening, Jesus let Thomas touch his hands inside. Does this mean that after Jesus met Mary, he as- Jesus ascended to heaven and then came back to see his disciples? Yes. <laughs> Very simple answer. Okay. Um, it's, I, I, think that, uh, I think that you are right on the money right here because that's exactly what the Bible says. The Bible says, you know, Jesus said, don't touch me because I haven't yet ascended. And then when he says to Thomas, touch me, or the other disciples, sorry, touch me, uh, clearly he has ascended and been back. All right. How about this one? This one's from also from a Facebook viewer, Dana. This came in the back end of our Facebook page. 
What does 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 9 mean when it says absent from the body? Oh, good question. It's good question. Well done. Because at the start of the passage, Paul is saying we want to put off our earthly body and be clothed with our heavenly body at the resurrection, I assume. But then he talks about being well-pleasing to the Lord while being absent from the body. He also talks about departing from earth to be with the Lord. In Philippians 1, he says to die is gain, to depart and be with Christ is far better, but he will live on in the flesh for the believer's sake. What does it mean? Okay, very simply, um, I think you have made some really good observations in that you've noted the context and too often people don't note the context when they read this passage right here. And you've noted correctly that there are two bodies. There is an earthly body and there is a heavenly body. And so let's read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. The Bible says, For we know that if our earthly body, house it says here, but earthly body of this house uh, were dissolved, dies, We have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So the Bible is not talking about being without a body. Mm -hmm. The Bible is talking about two different kinds of bodies. And the Bible tells us what our heavenly body will be like. If you hold your finger there and flick over to Philippians, I hope you're all following along wherever you are listening from. Uh, Let me see here. Where did this verse go? Uh, Doesn't it bother you when you know exactly where where the verse is and then it... uh, Is it verse 21 of chapter 3? It's the verse that in chapter 4 that Mm -hmm. says that our body will be fashioned like unto his glorious body. I think it's it's chapter 3 verse 21. Three verse, so it is. You know, I had it highlighted. I was, I was, I was looking in chapter four and verse one, which is the next verse. I'm like, why isn't it there? <laughs> it was so close. Okay, the Bible says, "Who change, shall change our vile body that we may, that it will be fashioned like unto His glorious body, mm-hmm. according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things to Himself." And so let's stop and think for a moment about, at the about, moment about the glorious body of Jesus. The glorious body of Jesus was the body that He had after He was resurrected. It was a very real body. It was a body that, you know, wasn't necessarily bound by all the physical rules that we have, rules of nature that we have here on this earth, but he still ate food. He still interacted with people and so forth. Okay, so the Bible says that we will receive a glorious body and you find a description of Jesus in his glory in Revelation chapter 1. So you've got two bodies, one in heaven, one on earth. Back to 2 Corinthians. Um... Verse 2, the Bible says, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our body, which is from heaven. So we have this body and we groan because, well, there's probably a lot of reasons why we groan about this one. This one's a bit frail. We'd much rather have the one that is like the one that Jesus had. And then it goes on in verse 3, If so, being that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. And so this is where Paul makes it very, very clear. There's no such thing as an intermediate state. In other words, there's no such thing as a disembodied soul. Mm -hmm. Okay, We're not going to be found naked. There's no naked souls running around anywhere. We have a a earthly body here right now. And when Jesus returns, we will be given a heavenly body. Nothing in between where you're a disembodied soul. Verse 4, for we know that this tabernacle... The one we have right now, this house, this body, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed. Don't want to have an an, an 
you know, a soul without a body, but clothed with that mortality, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. So Paul is very, very clear in these first verses where he's giving context that there's no such thing as an unclothed soul. There is a body on earth, there is a body in heaven, and we're in one of those two or the other. And of course, he goes to great lengths in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says, where he tells us when we receive that new body. In fact, let's turn and look at that very quickly. This is a big question. It is. It's a good answer. I'm spending some time on it. I'm enjoying the answer. Okay. This, the Bible tells you when you get your heavenly body. Verse 51, Behold, I show you, show you a mystery. We won't all sleep, but we will all be changed. When? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Not when you die, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible, this body, must put on immortality, the heavenly body, and this mortal must put on immortality. And so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. What great news we have right there. Okay, so there's our context. Mm -hmm. Paul is talking about two different bodies. Now we can understand the next verses quite easily. Uh, Let me see here. Now, he that wrought for us, the self-same thing is God, who also has given us the promise of his spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in this body, it says the body, but in the context of the previous verses, we see that he's actually saying this body, we are absent from the Lord. This body cannot be with God. This is sinful human flesh. Uh, If we walk by faith, not by sight, wherefore uh, a confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from this body to be present with the Lord. Paul isn't saying here that when we are present with the Lord, we are in a disembodied state. He's saying, no, when we're absent from this body, the good thing about that is that we are going to be present with God in our heavenly body. Do you know what I really appreciate about that answer? Is that it doesn't contradict what Jesus said. It's exactly what Jesus it's says harmony, right through the Bible. Yeah, I love Perfect that harmony Bible. right there. <laughs> Wherefore we labor, it says, mm-hmm. that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Excellent. Whether we're here on this earth or we're here, there with him in heaven, we will be accepted of him. All right. Well, um, on that note, maybe we can talk. Yeah, it was a, a big bit. question. <laughs> that was a big one. Yeah. But if we can keep talking about maybe the resurrection. Yes. Um, to do with this this subject tonight. Yes. If I read just one verse, and maybe you can help me understand it. Okay. Um, I'm reading from John chapter five, mm-hmm. verses twenty-eight and twenty-nine. It says, "Marvel not at this." And I, this is Jesus speaking. Yeah, we read this one the other night. Yes. Twice. <laughs> Did we? Yes. So he comes for the that. third anyway. time. Here I think go. I'm going to read it again tomorrow night as well. We'll okay. see. Okay. You might read it. Okay. You might know it off by heart by the I'll end. I'll know it by heart. For the hour is coming in in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now, okay, how many how many resurrections are spoken well, of there, Sharissa? Like there's two. There's one. So what's what's the first good, one called? Well, the good one unto life. Yes. And then there's one that for evil, those that have done evil unto damnation. That's right. So the Bible says there's a resurrection of life, mm-hmm. and the Bible says there's a resurrection of damnation. Yes. Okay, so you've got two there. Mm-hmm. All right, read for me. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6. Yeah. Uh, Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. They shall reign with him a thousand years. Okay. 
Notice that the Bible says right here, blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. Mm -hmm. So if you have a first resurrection, that implies there's a second one, right? Yeah, for sure. There's two resurrections. The Bible is very clear about this. The resurrection of life is the first resurrection because the Bible says blessed and holy is he that has part in the first one. Then we know that the second one is going to be the resurrection of damnation just by process of elimination. Mm -hmm. The question is, when does that second resurrection, when does the resurrection of damnation happen? Sharissa, why don't you read for us Revelation chapter 20 and verse 5. It has the answer. All right. It says here, the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Okay, so if they didn't live again until the thousand years are finished, then at the end of the thousand years, what are they going to do? They'll live again. They'll live again. Yeah. Clearly, you've got another resurrection. So these are the two points that delineate the beginning and the ending of the resurrection. Sorry, of the, of the thousand years. The thousand years has two markers or bookends on it. Uh-huh. Two resurrections, one either end. So can maybe you can you just put the events that happen to people when Jesus comes back? Just okay, so very, very simply, Jesus returns to this earth. Uh-huh. The righteous are caught up to meet God in the heaven. The resurrection of the righteous takes place. And so the righteous are with God there. Um, in fact, there's some really good verses that we're going to look at on this. Because when you think about it, when Jesus comes back, there's going to be four groups of people on earth, okay? You're going to have the righteous who are living. You're going to have the righteous dead. who are dead. You're going to have the wicked who are living and the wicked who are dead. Sharissa, let's find out what the Bible says about what happens to the people when Jesus comes back. Why don't you read for us? Uh, let me see here. Let's go to this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. All right. Here the Bible says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Okay, so Sharissa, from that verse, when Jesus comes back, what happens to the righteous who are dead? They rise first. They rise first. So the first thing that happens is there's a resurrection. And now all of the righteous are alive here on this earth. And then what happens next? Then those people who are alive and remaining, and it looks like the author here is Paul. He puts himself in that category. He said we. Yeah, he's pretty keen for Jesus to come back. <laughs> all right. I, I put myself, I, I, I'd write that with a we all day long. Yeah, me too. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up t- together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we meet God, we meet Jesus in the air. And we go to heaven. Jesus came back. Jesus gave the promise. He said this. He said uh, to his disciples, yet a little while I'm with you and I'm going away. And where I'm going, you can't come. John chapter 13, verse 33. Then in verse 36, Peter gets all worried and says, where are you going? (laughs) And so in chapter 14 and verse 1, Jesus answers the question. He says, in my father's house, that's heaven, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to heaven to prepare a place for you in heaven, that where I am in heaven, there you may be also. Jesus promised, and he says, if I come again, I will receive you unto myself, that, you know, that's where you will be. Mm-hmm. Jesus, the promise to us is that Jesus is coming back to this earth to take us to heaven, which is why the Bible says, John in vision, the Bible says, heard the voice of much people in heaven rejoicing and praising God. Mm, beautiful. Good things to look forward to. Yeah. All right. Uh, all right. So now we know what happens to the righteous when Jesus comes back. 
the righteous who were dead are resurrected, the righteous who are living, they join them and they're all caught up to meet Jesus in the air when, where they go to heaven. What happens to the wicked when Jesus comes back? Where can we find it, Lyle? Let's go to First <laughs> Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 to 10. Okay. So here it says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so the wicked who are alive, what happens to them according to that verse? Pretty strong verse. Well, they're going to be punished. With what? Everlasting destruction. They're destroyed. Yeah. Okay, so now you've got no wicked people left alive on this earth. What about the wicked people who are already dead? Any ideas on that? Let me give you a Bible verse. Uh, Why don't you read for us Revelation 20 and verse 5? The rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Okay, so the rest of the dead, they simply stay dead. Well, that's nice and simple, isn't it? It's very simple. And so now rather than having four groups, you've only got two. Mm -hmm. All of the righteous are alive and in heaven with Jesus. All of the wicked are dead on this earth until the end of the thousand years. I like that simple. Makes it nice and simple. Clean cut. Clean cut. One more verse, then we'll take some questions. Uh, Why don't you read for us Jeremiah chapter 25? And there's a really key statement at the end of this prophecy. So Jeremiah 25, verse 31 to 33. All right. I'm going to read as much as I can here. The Lord will plead his case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword. Behold, disaster shall go forth from nation to nation. And at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth, even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. Okay, so why doesn't anybody gather them, bury them or mourn for them? Well, it could be a few reasons. Maybe there's too many or maybe there's no one Well, that could you... do the job. Okay, so let's think about it. Where are all the righteous after Jesus comes back? In heaven. In heaven. And where are all the wicked? They're all dead. There's nobody here to bury them. There's nobody here to gather them. There's nobody here to mourn for them. The earth at this time is completely and entirely depopulated of all living inhabitants. All right, so now we've found out what happens to all the people when Jesus comes back. We're going to find out next what happens to the earth when Jesus comes back. And, of course, this is all to deal with the beginning of the 1,000 years. We often refer to it as the millennium. Uh, simply means what, milli, thousand years, annum. Mm-hmm. Um, But before we do, why don't we take some questions? All right. I'm really excited because we've got some real doozies here for you tonight, Lyle. Oh. (laughs) And please, as you're watching, as as questions... Probably my co-host on on, on Faith FM Radio on The Breakfast Show, Lawson, he always sends in curly ones. Lawson is not amongst this list (laughs) yet. Yet. But uh, please, as you're watching, send in your questions. We'd love to pitch them to Lyle. First one here is coming from Alita on Facebook, and she's writing in for a friend. Why are the 1,000 years of Revelation 20 literal in a book that is predominantly symbolic and how do we determine what is literal and symbolic in the book of Revelation? Are there any guidelines? And then if not, then determining what is literal and symbolic becomes subjective. Okay, yes, there are some very clear clear guidelines as to understand when to take the language literally and when to take it symbolically. And the easiest way to understand that is to look for the obvious, 
For instance, let me give you an example from the book of Revelation. Uh, when the Bible says that it's going to be symbolic, the Bible will make it very, very clear that it's going to be symbolic. Watch this in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1. I stood on the sand of the sea. I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. On his horns, ten crowns. On his heads, the name of blasphemy. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, but his feet were like a bear, his mouth like a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his seat, and great authority. Sharissa, have you ever seen one of these? I've never been. I've never seen this in Taronga Zoo. No, there's not one of these in Taronga Zoo and you won't find any one of these anywhere in the world. And if you do see one, let us know. We will find some help for you. Some very nice people will come and uh, look after you. Yeah. Okay. So very clearly the Bible is, you know, it goes to spectacular lengths to demonstrate that this is a prophecy that is to be taken symbolically. Mm -hmm. And God uses almost extreme language to indicate you can't take this literally. God makes it impossible to take it literally. And that's what you need to look for. You need to look for the symbolic language within the prophecy because when the prophecy is using symbolic language, then we apply it symbolically. Mm -hmm. Most of Revelation is written using symbolic language, but not all of it. Mm -hmm. And when you come to Revelation chapter 20, it's just using very, very straightforward language. Okay. You know, angel comes down, binds Satan for a thousand years, a judgment takes place. Um, the wicked are resurrected at the end of it. This is very, very straightforward language. There is nothing here to indicate that this should be taken symbolically. And if the Bible isn't indicating that it should be taken symbolically, then we shouldn't take it symbolically. Okay. So it's not 1,000 1, prophetic years of time. It's 1,000. Now, that would be a very long time. Yeah. Um, or symbolic, symbolic years, you should say. Yes. Uh, we should say rather than prophetic. Um, symbolic years. Yep. Uh, because symbolic years, a day symbolizes years. A lot, of, a lot of days in a thousand years. That's yeah. true. Yeah. All right. Here's another really good one here. Um, actually, Barry wrote this in yesterday and he's written it in again. Um, oh, he wants the answer. <laughs> he wants the answer. He's watched, sent it in via YouTube and Facebook. Good to have you, Barry. Here is my question. When do you think Jesus will return? Do you know of any scriptures pointing to that time? Okay. The Bible says no one knows the day or the hour. So I can't give you a scripture that is going to tell you when Jesus comes back. But if you go back and listen to night number one of this series, you're going to see there a whole bunch of signs that Jesus gave and a description of the world and what the world would be like just before he returns. And everything that Jesus says about what the world would be like just before he comes back is being fulfilled right now. So if you missed it, night number one, of uh, uh, the end of time, the end.digital, that's where you need to go. That's the good thing. All the previous presentations are still on our They're website. still available on our website. They They're still them. available on YouTube. Uh, you just go to the end.digital on YouTube. It's all there. All right. Well, here's one more. Maybe we can go back to our Bible study. But how do you know if you are righteous? This is coming from David on Facebook. How do I know if I'm righteous? There's a very simple answer to that found in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Mm -hmm. So if I am cleansed from all unrighteousness, then that means there is no unrighteousness in me, right? And if there is no unrighteousness in me, then I'm righteous. So the answer is very simple. How do you know whether you're righteous? You know whether you're righteous if you have confessed your sins to Jesus Christ. And of course, this is something we do every day. 
This is not something that you do once in your lifetime. It's like, oh, I've ticked that box. That's good. No, we walk with Jesus every day and we, we aim to become more like him every day that goes by. Yeah, I like that. Well, Lyle, um, I've got some more questions. All right. I want to know. Let's get back to it. Eh? Yeah, back to the what's going to happen during the thousand years because yes. now we know the start time. We know uh, when the wicked are raised. But like, what's what the, happens to the world? Yeah, eh? like what's going on here for one thousand years? Okay, so here's here's some homework for you. Go home and read. Uh, no, don't go home. You're probably already at home. <laughs> Stay at home. <laughs> Stay at home wherever you are. Um, but read Revelation chapter sixteen. Revelation chapter sixteen is the seven last plagues. Uh, and you're going to find that when those plagues come on this earth, it wreaks havoc on this planet. I mean, you've got one plague there that has, has an earthquake so massive that whole mountain ranges disappear, islands vanish. Wow. You know, the world is wrecked. You've got hailstones the size of watermelons falling out of the sky. That's climate change on, you know, that's next level climate <laughs> change right there. <laughs> climate change on steroids, that's yeah. for sure. Uh, the Bible describes it in Jeremiah. The Bible describes exactly what the world will look like just after the return of Jesus Christ in Jeremiah chapter 4. Sharissa, why don't you read for us verse 23 to 27? Sure. I beheld, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord. Wow. So, yeah, it's pretty messed you know, up. You go down through that, you go down through that <laughs> verse there and you can see the aftershocks from that earthquake. The Bible says the, the mountains are trembling and moving still. It hasn't finished yet. You know, there's, there's, there's no animals, there's no birds, there's no people, there's no cities. Everything is just wrecked. And at the very beginning of that, it says something really interesting. It says, I saw or I beheld and the earth was without form and it was void. Yeah, that sounds so familiar. <laughs> There's one other place in the Bible that uses that language. You know where it is, don't I you? I do, because every time I go to read my Bible through... <laughs> it's the first thing you read, right? It's the first thing I read. Okay, where do we find that and what does it say? So Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. Okay, so what you've got here is that God, when he returns, when Jesus returns, he takes this earth back to square one, back to scratch. He takes it back to what it was like when he first created it. He says it was without form and void at the beginning. And when sin is destroyed, when Jesus comes back, he's like, I'll take it back straight back to where it was. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that, of course, is because he's going to recreate it. Okay. Yes. No, you, do you want to add? Oh, I sure can, do. Because like, if I don't stop you, I'm, you'll keep I'm, going. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm so excited because... The Bible describes the earth here in Genesis 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. Mm. Now, that word right there, the deep, in the Septuagint, the Greek version, that word is the abyss, mm. the abusos. You know where else that's found in the Bible? Revelation chapter 20. That was Revelation chapter 20. Watch this. <laughs> Revelation chapter 2, because a lot of people want to know, where's the bottomless pit? Well, you might be living in it. Um, <laughs> Revelation chapter 20, the Bible says that he cast Satan into the bottomless pit, the abusos. Mm. Now, you think about this for a moment. Our earth is turned into what the Bible describes as the bottomless pit. 
Now, our earth is the only place and place in the universe where Satan is allowed to go. He didn't have access to the rest of the universe because nowhere else in the universe accepted Satan. And so now what happens is that God comes down. He takes all the people away. There's nobody left here. The earth is destroyed and Satan is trapped. Hmm. Okay. So that's what he's doing for a thousand years. Indeed it is. It's going to be bored. I think, I think this will be torture for somebody like him of the highest order. You know, when you uh, stop and think about this right here, um, you've kind of got to ask yourself the question, you know, how do you, you know, or people ask me the question, you know, how are you going to bind up Satan with a chain? Because clearly you can't take a chain and bind up a spirit mm-hmm. being. The answer is found right here um, in verse 3. Why don't you read for us verse 3 again? All right. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. What's the purpose for binding Satan? So that he should not deceive the nations no more. To stop him deceiving. He only has access to our planet. You take all the people away, Satan can't deceive. He's bound. Mm. See what happens? Mm-hmm. Satan doesn't have to be bound by a literal chain. Well, you can't bind a spirit being with a literal chain. But you can bind them by circumstances. Have you ever had somebody, uh, um, um, you know, have you ever asked somebody to come and give you a hand with something? Maybe you're going to move house or something. They're like, oh, I'm sorry. I'd love to give you a hand. Really would, but I'm all really kind of tied up right now. Yeah. Did you go and untie them? No. No. <laughs> had nothing to do with rope or yeah. chains or handcuffs. It was all about circumstances. Yeah. All yeah, right. They didn't want to move your house. It's not a fun job. Oh, Lyle, I'm looking at the time. I think it's just flying. Oh, no. What happened? I don't know how this happened. The end of time is coming. That's all I can say. Oh, dear. Shall we quickly shoot to a question and keep it running? We now have to do some questions. We're going to have to go quickly. We're going to smash this out, guys. Hang on to your seats. This is going to go fast. (laughs) This one's a question from Yvonne on YouTube. She's asking the harvest of the end of... In Matthew thirteen thirty nine, is that the final destruction of earth by fire? Okay, so Matthew chapter 13, verse 39. Matthew 13 and verse 39. Here's what it says. The enemy, oh, so this is, this is part of a, a, a parable. Uh, verse 37, he that sowed them. Uh, you know what? We're out of time. I'm going to read this tomorrow night. Okay. We'll this is part of tomorrow, tomorrow night's night. presentation. Um, Let's do it then. We'll give you a really quick one then. Another really quick one. You want to yep. keep going? Do another quick question. Uh, this is from Tilly on YouTube. Hello. When? Oh, hello. <laughs> she said hello here too. When is the marriage supper of the Lamb? When is it? Okay. So, once again, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Quick question. The marriage supper of the Lamb takes place when we arrive in heaven. Mm. At straight after the resurrection, the return of Jesus, and we arrive in heaven. Marriage supper of the Lamb. All right. So, Lyle. Yes. What are the saints doing for a thousand years? You said Satan's okay. here on this yes, earth. Yes, I did. We, I did. I'm going to give you three passages that tell you exactly what the saints did during the thousand years. Okay, good. And I want you to read them for us. First of all, Revelation 20 verse 4. Yep. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's nice and clear. Okay. So they are judging mm-hmm. during that period. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Now read Daniel 7:22. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. Okay, so judgment is given to? The saints. The saints of the Most High. And now 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3. Know ye not that we shall judge angels. Okay, so there is a process of judgment taking place during the thousand years. 
Let me run through this very simply. The judgment, God doesn't need to have a judgment to find out who's saved and who's lost. The purpose of the judgment is not for God to find anything out. He knows all that already. The purpose of the judgment is to remove doubt from the universe so that when God condemns some people and saves others, there aren't people out there going, wait a minute, I thought that person should have been saved. They look really righteous to me. Why did they end up being condemned? Right? And the purpose of the judgment is before God does any of that, he's like he opens the books and he's like, let's have a judgment. And the Bible describes the judgment taking place in open court in front of the assembled multitudes of the universe so that when he makes those decisions and he comes back to this earth and some are saved and some are lost, there's no questions anywhere. This is God's way of guaranteeing that sin never comes back because if you leave a seed of doubt, given time, it'll sprout and grow and return. There's a problem with that. That has to happen before Jesus comes back. Because the Bible says he brings his reward with him. So that means we can't be there. So what happens if you get to heaven and there's people in heaven, there's people that are not in heaven that you expected to be there. And, you know, you'd be caught up and be like, oh, yeah, I love God and praise God and all the rest. But given eternity, yeah. a seed of doubt could come into your mind. Sure. So the thousand years is very simply God opens up the book of the records again. This is okay. Here's all my decisions. Have a look for yourself. See if there's anything you disagree with. And if there's anything you disagree with, you're welcome to raise it. Of course, there won't be. But there also won't be any doubt that could ever jeopardise the harmony of the universe ever again. Okay. So what about what happens at the end of the... End of the thousand years. Okay, we can do this straight from Revelation chapter 20. Let's just go straight over there. Uh Revelation chapter 20 and start for us in verse 7. It says, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Okay, how, is, how was Satan bound? Satan was bound because all the people were taken away. Mm-hmm. The Bible says the rest of the dead didn't live until the thousand years were finished. Therefore, you have the resurrection of damnation take place at the thousand years. And once the wicked are raised back to life, then Satan is set free because now he is able to deceive again. Next verse. Verse 8, and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the earth to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. So somebody asked about this the other night. I'm cutting it short. The Bible says, when does Jesus' feet come down? When does Jesus come down and his feet touch the Mount of Olives? The Mount of Olives is where Jerusalem is. And so when Jesus comes down at the end of the thousand years, the Bible says, well, his feet touch on the Mount of Olives. It becomes a great plain. Why do you need a great plain there? Because the Bible says the new Jerusalem comes down to this earth. And we're going to find that in the next verses. And Satan goes out to deceive the nations that have just been resurrected. The wicked that have just been resurrected. We can take the new Jerusalem. We outnumber them. Let's take it. Next verse, 9. Verse 9, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Okay, Uh, very simple right there. You notice that the new Jerusalem is on earth with Jesus and the saints. This is what happens at the end of the thousand years. We're getting a skeleton view right here. And then finally, you have uh, that last verse there, which describes one last judgment. Let's read that and then let's finish off. All right. Uh, This is uh, verses 11 to 14. Yes. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. 
See, God has gone, God has left no stone unturned here. Before he comes back, he holds a judgment in open court so that there's no doubt anywhere in the universe. After he comes back, he gives us a thousand years. Go and check out any records that you want so there's no doubt left with us. And then he's like, you know what? Maybe if I made a mistake somewhere in the records, maybe there's somebody out there who could raise an objection, put their hand up and say, okay, you forgot to record this. There's never going to be doubt again. There's never going to be the opportunity for doubt. God's not going to remove our power of choice. He just removes anything that could ever give any evidence that he isn't a God of love, mercy, truth, and justice. And then the wicked are finally destroyed forever. No more pain, no more suffering, no more sin. The former things have passed away. And then the Bible says that God recreates this world. That's something that I look forward to. Oh, me too, Lyle. Tonight's subject has been such an epic one, and I'm so glad that everyone could join us. Time literally was racing us. So we want you to know that you can take away tonight's free offer so that you can continue to study tonight's theme. Keep sending in your questions. We'll pitch them more t- tomorrow, tomorrow night. But if you'd like to obtain the free offer, text the word PEACE to the number on the screen, 0428-833-386. If you want to talk to us about tonight's subject, we'll be happy to hear from you. Text the word CHAT to the same number. And uh, again, tomorrow night we are back. Yes, we're going to pick up where we left off and we're going to talk about that fire that takes place at the very end. I'm really excited because this is all continuing. And we're going to see how this is a revelation of God's love. Oh, really? We are. That is something we don't want to miss. And so um, before I let you have the final word, Lyle, just remember to like the Facebook page, hit the bell on the YouTube channel, subscribe so you know when we go live tomorrow. The Bible says in the very next verse after the ones that we read, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth was passed away and there was no more sea. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be alive and to watch when God created our world and spoke it into existence? That would have been amazing. Here's the incredible thing. You can be a part of that. You see, you can watch God recreate our world at the end of the thousand years. After it's all over and done, the Bible says that he will recreate it back better than it ever was before. And you can stand right there in the new Jerusalem and you can watch it happen. Do you want to have that experience? If you want to have that experience, the the way to do it is so simple. Just give your life to Jesus Christ right now. And of course, If you'd like to speak to somebody about that, just text chat 0428-833-386. We would love to have a conversation with you and help you as you make your decision for Jesus Christ. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.